Fred. You scared? I don't love thunder. Nothing scares you. Oh no, I love being scared. Ah! I have an idea. Okay. What's your idea? Scare me. What? You scare me, I'll scare you. I can be scary. Cue convenient thunder and lightning. Motherfucker, we're burning moonlight. Whatever it is, it's close. It's a werewolf! Karen snaps! Excuse me? Pizza! I'm, uh, pizza guy! Glad to see you guys aren't killing each other out here, because it would be the perfect night to do it, you know? Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to Cryptique, where we discuss all things paranormal, occult, UFOs, metaphysical, hidden history, forbidden archaeology, and all things truther. And today, we're going to talk about movies. And we're going to talk about some horror movies, but we're going to talk about some other movies, too, because that's what we do. I'm joined, as always, by my boy, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. All right. I I think I wear this shirt a lot. Editing YouTube videos, I feel like I realized it right before this. So I probably wear the shirt too often. We'll get you a new but shirt. I don't have the matching hats and shirts that you have. Yeah, well, it's Timu, buddy. To... Oh, God. <laughs> All right. So real quick, what you guys right. need to know, please like, subscribe, and share. Socials are in the notes. You can let us know what you think at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can check out our stuff at crypticpodcaststore.com. And if you want to buy us a coffee... You can do that at buymeacoffee.com forward slash cryptique So now, as I alluded to earlier, one of my favorite people in the world, we want to introduce. Okay, well, before we do this, you've got some <laughs> different things out there. How do you want people to know you? Because you've got somewhere it's one name, somewhere it's a different name. I don't want to reveal your secret identity. Oh, yeah. You know, the DC villains would come after you. <laughs> yeah, Patrick Lawrence, yeah. Film film editor Patrick Lawrence, yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to read uh, some of your background because I know that you probably wouldn't want to do that. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when a guest comes on, you know, like when someone sings you happy birthday and you're in your 40s, you're kind of like, eh, it's a little cringy. So <laughs> allow me to introduce thyself. Patrick Lawrence is a Los Angeles-based professional film editor originally from right here in St. Louis, Missouri. And Patrick, update me if any of this is needs to be changed. So, Oh, yeah. Since, you're, oh, you're reading off the, the, my bio? Yeah. It'll be good. Okay. So since 2014, he's edited 16 feature films, including Scare Me, which is that still just on Shudder? No, it's available anywhere, yeah. Okay, great. I want to talk about that one because I love that movie. And Clara's Ghost, which I I wanted to watch. I just didn't have time this afternoon. Uh, But they both premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. That's a big deal, right? Very big. That's kind of like the World Series of uh, film festivals. Exactly. All right. So in addition to having seven films premiere at Sundance, 
projects that he has edited have screened worldwide at Con SXSW. Am I saying that right, or do I sound South by Southwest? South by Southwest. Okay. Uh, Tribeca, Outfest, AFI Fest, and more. Uh, So outside of the theatrical, he is an accomplished television editor, recently serving as lead editor on seasons one and two of Bonding, available on Netflix, as well as the second season of This Close for Sundance TV. And he believes that filmmaking is a collaborative art that succeeds on the backs of those that you surround yourself with. Prides himself on being a passionate collaborator, coworker, and friend who will stop at nothing to make sure your project leaves his care in the best shape possible. And I can vouch for him being a great friend, coworker, and collaborator as he was the narrator on a terrible film I made in 2005 <laughs> that you will never see. But trust me, he did a great job. It's the only redeeming part of the movie. So, <laughs> all right. So, can you now we went over a little bit, but can you kind of share what some of these awards are, what they're exactly for, and what they mean? Or do you, you know what? Actually, before that, let's talk about Scare Me. Is, is mm-hmm. would you consider that one of your biggest? Uh, films, yeah, I think it's probably one of the most recognized projects that I've been a part of. And, um, you know, a lot of I've been living out in Los Angeles uh, since 2015, and I've uh, been working as an editor now since 2011. And, you know, a lot of stuff you work on, you give so much time and energy and hours and days and months of your life working on stuff, and then nobody sees it. Yeah. We know so, how you feel. <laughs> Trust us. So, so Scare Me is one of those ones where it it actually did sort of like break through a little bit. And and I think it might have been – it came out in October of 2020. So we were still kind of in quarantine mode. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if that necessarily like helped it or hurt it, but like – if you had a shutter subscription at the time, you know, you probably saw it because they promoted it pretty heavily. And for me, <clears throat> coming out of the pandemic, uh, it it was sort of a really good calling card to have because I could take meetings with people and say, like, I'm the editor who did right. scare me. And uh, they they were familiar and and so and so I was able to really um, piggyback off of that for a couple of years post pandemic mm-hmm. in doing more horror comedies, which previous to the pandemic, I'd done a lot of like dark comedies. So if you watch mm-hmm. like bonding on Netflix or this close and other TV projects I've done, a lot of them were just like strictly just like comedy based, mm-hmm. but I had done Clara's ghost in 2017, 2018 and that was horror comedy that was sort of like the real the first real horror comedy that i did and so that is that job is actually what got me scare me and then scare me just kind of shot me off into that territory that's awesome i i haven't seen scare me since the day it came out oh yeah one thing that i noticed about it and like i said brian's a film aficionado kind of he had a or or has a podcast on uh yeah we're we're bringing it back all right so uh we're trying to figure out what direction to take it in it's hard to hard to make a movie review podcast there are so many out there you got to have your own sort of niche or 
personality. And it's hard to be edgy on YouTube anymore. It is. It is. One thing I wanted to talk about, and and this is why I bring up that he's kind of a more of a film aficionado than I am, is obviously when I'm watching it, I knew you edited it. So that's what I'm focusing on, right? Like I'm like, okay, well, he picked this cut here and this cut here. And it just seemed like Scare Me had like 500 cameras because there were <laughs> just like every possible angle that you could get it seems like it's in there. Am I right? Was that difficult? Yeah, I think, uh, so it didn't have 500 cameras, which okay. is the, you know, it had one camera, um, and it was made for a very, very modest budget. And, huh. uh, and the, uh, the strengths of scare me was that, uh, writer and director, Josh Rubin, he basically, knew what he had available and built around that. So he knew that he could get a cabin in the woods and he knew mm-hmm. that he had a finite amount of money to make this film and then built it off of the strengths of that. So it's like, if you could get three, you know, pretty well-known actors and then get them in one room and then have the whole thing take place in that one room, like mm-hmm. what are the strengths of it? And it's really on the backs of the acting of it. So my, approach is always i try i'm a minimalist at heart okay i try to do i try to edit the scene with the least amount of cuts the least amount of coverage you know i like to just i like to make sure that you feel like you earn certain shots uh and what scared me it was difficult because every take you could have played the whole thing in a one you could have just let it run and like that was it. Like you could and just watch that. Yeah. So when you're trying to make that decision, it's even tougher. Okay. Because now it's like, okay, well, I got one good performance. Now I got another good performance. <laughs> now I got six good performances. Right. So it's like trying to decide which one outshines the other. Gotcha. So that was really difficult. And the scene that I love, um, and I can I can send you a clip so you can cut it in here if you need to. But the, great, the scene that I love from the movie is when uh, they tell the werewolf story. Mm-hmm. And sort of the behind the scenes of that was that um, the two actors in the scene are Josh Rubin and Aya Cash. And Aya was not on set that day. She was feeling sick. So Josh had to act out the whole scene just for the <laughs> room. So, just acting like she was there. Just acting like she was there. And so... Every take I looked at, I was like, oh, this is phenomenal. And then he goes up Mm -hmm. to the balcony and I'm like, this is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So then when you get the next day's footage and now you've got the coverage of Aya and you're like, okay, now she's, you know, Mm -hmm. doing it up just as well as he was. And now you're trying to, you know, find the balance to the scene. And, and yeah, I, I struggled with it a lot more than any other film I've worked on simply because I didn't know if I got it right. I think sometimes you're working on stuff and you're like, that that feels right. I looked at the footage. This is the way to do it. You know, and it could always be, you know, malleable and you can change it. But like, uh, that was one where I was like, there's literally a thousand different ways I could play this scene. And gotcha. I'm just going to go with the version that I think works the best. Right on. How much creative freedom do you have? 
because I know, and we'll, I definitely want to talk about occults, and I want to talk a little bit about Nothing Still, too, but you had a lot of creative control in those projects. How much do you have, you know, a, as an editor? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Uh, so I, you know, when I started dabbling and going to film school, mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to be a director. And I think, I think a lot of people want to be directors, sure. um, but uh, I had a hard time sort of feeling like my ideas stood out because when you're surrounded by a lot of highly creative people, mm-hmm. they've all got really good ideas and, you know, confidence issues take hold sure. and you start doubting yourself. And um, so I had all of those things and I had ended up taking uh, this is, this is actually before I even met you. Like I had ended up taking um, a video production course because uh, digital filmmaking was just starting to happen. And uh, this would have been around 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. And I, I took this video production course where we were shooting on DV tape. And so we would spend, it was like a four hour long class. So we would take the first two hours, go and shoot something around campus and then come in and edit it for the next two hours. And when I realized how I could do that and how I could make certain decisions, I realized that editing was sort of an extension of directing. Sure. So if I couldn't, if I couldn't succeed as a director, I could do, I could be an editor and I could still have sort of influence over whatever the final, uh, the the final product is. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really interests me. So, so yeah, I'll say that like, it's I, what they don't tell you. I always tell kids that like you can't learn this stuff in a classroom. Like you can learn the basics of like how to use, a, how to use an editing system and sure. you know, codecs and all of that stuff. But like what, what they don't teach you is collaboration and like egos and being a psychiatrist for the editor, for the director yeah. and all of these things. That like I never knew going into this either. I was just like, oh, this is fun. I could, I could, I could be, you know, I could have all this influence. And no, 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 no. But like, they don't tell you what to do when you're like sitting in the room with the director behind you, and they're like, <laughs> they're like losing their mind over something. And mm-hmm. and so, um, I would say that like to get back to your question about creative influence, um, I I, I definitely have a lot because the way that I approach an edit is. I come in and I do my version first. So mm-hmm. like right now I'm, I'm working on this film right now and like what they just finished shooting a week and a half ago or something. And I come in and I just start editing the scenes and seeing like what feels right, what I'm vibing with. And then I walk away from it and then I'll eventually I'll go back and I'll start assembling it all together and like I'll create the editor's cut. But I do all of this before the director's even seen the movie. And the reason I do that is because the worst thing in the world would be to me for me to sit here with a director over my shoulder, like hemming <laughs> and hawing over every single take. So somebody's sure. got to do that work first, mm-hmm. because otherwise it's never getting done. It's it you just lose your mind because yeah. you know you get in a room with directors and they they are you know they're bothered by something that happened on set, you know mm-hmm. or you know, oh, this person in the background's wearing the wrong color shirt or we saw them yeah. in the previous shot. No, no, no. It's like, who gives a shit? Excuse my language. Like, No, you can say whatever <laughs> you want to. You're so fine. It's like, so it's like uh, somebody has to go in and do all of that finessing and all of that, 
that think work before you get in the room and they start having these like uh uh you know they're certain they're sort of melting from their insecurities <laughs> you know um so i so that that is sort of where my influence begins and then what i try to do and this is a battle but like what i try to do is when i get into the director's cut i let them sort of come in and start pushing their weight around mm-hmm. and i have to be like i have to be willing to kill my own darlings because there's things that i've done that i think are really good sure. but like arguably when you start getting you know outside eyes and ears on things that you start realizing like oh no that is a better idea we should try that sure. so so it's a real struggle but you do you do want to kind of see like where the road goes and more often than not you go down a path and then you know a week two weeks a month later they're like i want they, they they either go i want to go back to the way you had it or mm-hmm. they go oh what if we did it like this and you're like the way i did it <laughs> redo everything yeah so so yeah so at the end of the day i would say that my creative influence on a film you know it it is me right like when i when i when i watch a finished film any editor would probably tell you this is like they make that film you know i right. think i think that uh cinematographers writers actors directors it's like those are all the things that like are necessary to make a film work Mm -hmm. and we each sort of have authorship over that but i would say even more so with with editors it's like we physically make the movie well and the the editing often determines the feel of it and the pacing and all that and i i personally feel like especially with lower budget productions the editing makes or breaks it I mean, one of the one of our favorite movies that I did with my other buddy on our other podcast was uh, Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers, mm-hmm. which was on Amazon Prime. It's a low budget thing, and the editing is perfect. I mean, there's there's no joke that they hold on to for too long. There's no shot that lingers too long. Whoever did it just perfectly balanced each scene to make it look awkward kind of low budget a little hokey a little campy but to show you that they're in on it like they understand what they're doing they're in on the joke they know that it's a goofy you know it's almost like a lost boys but they're in on the parts that are unintentionally hilarious Mm -hmm. and i just feel like a lot of that comes down to the editor like you said like having a vibe of what they what they feel like is going to work well how long to stay with something just, I mean, like you said, the cinematographer has their framing actors have their, everybody has their part, but the editor, if the editor does poorly, there's no way to cover that up. There's no way to recover from a badly cut movie or badly timed scenes. Well, I would go deeper than that and say that, you know, you could polish a turd, right? <laughs> but there's only <laughs> there's only so much that you can do if if a script is bad and if the acting is bad. Like, sure. you know, I think there becomes there's a couple of things that I've worked on that I've definitely made watchable, but that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean they I made a good movie out of it. But I, I did the best that I could, um, and um, you know those flaws do you know shine through like they do you know. Yeah. But a lot of times. You know, uh, what I was going to say about that was that uh, we 
tend, uh, I think some of the weight of like a flaw being on the edit isn't necessarily always on the edit. It's a lot of times it's the decisions that the directors make that you just can't argue your way out of. And you just have to succumb to it and say like, okay, fine. We're going to do that because your name is first. Mine is not. So so it's like, if you're making a terrible decision and you don't want to hear me out on why it's a terrible decision, you're the one that's got to answer for it. But it sounds like when I'm dealing with my kids, well, hey, if you want to do that, go ahead. But you, you know, you're you want to pick up that uh, hot pan, your hand's going to burn. And of course, yeah, I don't let my kid do that. But yeah, sometimes you have to be like, all right, dude, it's on you then. Yeah. So, yeah. so you might look at a situation. I think there's a there's an interesting conversation that's going on right now about the movie Madam Web because I think people are just kind of universally saying it's the worst movie of all time, and. And there's a lot of blame being put on the writers and the director and what they're not, what they're not taking into consideration is the influence from the studio and all of the changes that were made in the edit that was put upon the editor. And so all of those things, I think, yeah, nobody ever sets out to make a bad movie, right? You Mm -hmm. know, everybody wants to make the best movie possible, but it's just whatever the circumstances are that eventually like take over and, and you know, the thing happens. Well, and with Bantam Web, I, if I understand it right, it's a Sony movie. Mm-hmm. So it technically is not supposed to tie into or lead up to Tom Holland, Spider-Man. And I, what I saw in some of the interviews made it seem like it's not even related to Venom or any of the mm-hmm. other Sony projects that they've done. So, yeah, like you're saying, that's kind of a studio thing. That's restrictions based on laws, on intellectual property or even just we don't want to necessarily tie this into something else so we have the freedom to maybe just kind of push that aside later if it doesn't do terribly well mm-hmm. and i when i was talking about low budget movies I, I feel like a big pitfall i see is that the person who makes it you know it's they write it they direct it you know people like uh, chris stuckman who started out doing youtube and then they get into directing themselves. The guys who used to do the totally rad show on revision three and YouTube, uh, Dan Trachtenberg moved into directing as well. But some of these guys for their first projects, they kind of try to do everything, including the editing. Did you, and did you know that I edited Chris Stuckman's movie? No, no, I had no I idea. Did. I, I am the editor on Shelby Oaks. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. then he's not trying to do it all by himself. So no, he no, no, no. He he gave me a ton of freedom on that film. No, Chris is great. Chris is fantastic, and I think he's going to be a very, very successful director, especially once this movie comes out and people see it. I think he's going to have plenty of opportunities. Yeah, I'm definitely interested to see it. So, mm-hmm. not that I would ask for an advanced copy or anything. <laughs> no, no, I can't. I cannot share. <laughs> Well, that that'll get you kicked out of Hollywood for sure. Oh yeah, man. oh man, that'd be the worst thing ever. Um, so do you do you think that others in Hollywood and you know we we talk about Hollywood as Hollywood? We don't really know what goes on there. Just the average you know Midwesterner has no idea. Is there like editors where you're like, boom, I know who did that? You don't have to read the credits, you know, and, and are you kind of developing a style like that where people might be able to say, well, I know who did that. Yeah. That turned out great. Let's get him. Uh, I would like to think so, but it, I think it is kind of difficult because there is a, there are certain editors that you might see and you go, Oh, 
that looks like something that this person would do. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Cross is somebody that I think about a lot who did Whiplash and La La Land. And he's, you know, he's moved on to do sort of bigger projects like the last Bond movie. And, mm-hmm. uh, but he has a style of editing that's like, I, I see it and, and I know exactly who that is. Um, but I, but I, but I think that like a lot of the crafts in filmmaking, even in cinematography, it's like, it's, it's hard to, you know, when you see good editing and you can tell when you see bad editing, but it's like, but it's like being, being an efficient editor, I think is, um, maybe like less noticeable just because it's like, oh, that's just good editing. You know, so, um, but yeah, if you have a certain kind of style to it, I think, you know, I, I, I would, I would think that like, um, um, uh, what's his, uh, the guy that, uh, the guy that edited, um, everything everywhere all at once. Um, he, uh, I think he's got a very specific style of editing because of who he works with, with the Daniel. So I'd be interested to see like the next movie he does, like if, if you know that director or producer is leaning on him to be more like that so gotcha and i guess it makes you know if patrick was to do eight horror comedies in a row you might be able to pick up on a style but it's i guess i assume it's different styles for different styles of you know tv or movie too yeah i don't think like like i can't do scare me on every movie mm-hmm. uh you know i could and i think that like it just has to be everything has a certain tone Mm -hmm. and so you have to adapt to that um and then a lot of times directors they come in and they have specific references so my job is to do a tiny bit of research and then try to you know bend myself to that try to figure out because because they want a specific thing if they're like oh i saw the thing in this movie i want to do it like that it's like oh okay cool um and so you go and you watch that and you try to figure out like, okay, how did they do that? Okay. That's how they did it. And then you try to apply it to your edit. Sounds and difficult. Get, get it as close as you can. I mean, it's, it's uh it isn't, it isn't. I think that what the, the, when I started working professionally, not just in college, but like mm-hmm. one of the things I figured out right away was that all of the things that you want to do in an edit, you've seen, on screen you've you've got it in your mind so it's just figuring out how to get it from here to your fingers and like once you've got that muscle memory then you're like you're like oh that's how they did it okay great and now i'm going to do that a few more times and then Mm -hmm. so all of those things you know there's still there's still stuff now that i'm you know i'll see something i'll go oh where did i see that before or or if i'm in if, if i'm in an edit and i'm like i want it to do this i don't know exactly what that is but i feel like i want to do like this and then once you start playing with it and start messing with the timing and, and everything then all of a sudden you just go oh there oh that that's it that's how i do it so cool how much would you charge to edit a podcast <laughs> <laughs> well times are tough right now in la you know we, you don't know well you know what that's that's something i wanted to get to uh to you but uh, for right now, you mentioned you don't notice necessarily good or even great editing as just a random, you know, moviegoer, but you do notice bad editing. And it's funny mm-hmm. that you brought up about the person wearing the yellow shirt in the background because my pet peeve with movies is say you're watching something like The Walking Dead because everybody's seen that. They've been living 
you know, basically out in the woods for 10 years, but then somebody's wearing a shirt and you can still see like the fold marks in it. Like it just came right off the shelf at Target and they threw it on. And mm -hmm. I'm like, and I don't know why, but that really bugs me. I'm like, no, it's got to look like it's been out there for 10 years in the elements and yeah. stuff like that. So it, it, yeah, it is something I, I look at. Maybe I shouldn't pay so much attention. <laughs> well, it's like when you, uh, when you see behind the curtain, then it's like, you know, too much, but no, I, I th the great thing is, is that there are, we have tools available now, you know, even with all the AI stuff that's going on that we can, we can change things that in the past we would be screwed. Right. Like, like something mm -hmm. like that, you know, you would just, just say like, okay, well, the costumer messed up. They didn't iron out that shirt. They didn't age it. Mm -hmm. So it is what it is. But now you know, we can use, you know, visual effects and AI tech to basically go in and not only, you know, you could change, you know, a shirt or you can, I just, I, this movie I did in the fall, there was a, uh, like a tent, like a pop-up tent mm -hmm. and it was like super wrinkly. They didn't steam it out mm -hmm. and the director was really bothered by it. So we sent it to visual effects and had them iron it out. And so Every, there's like no wrinkles in the thing anymore. So you could do that, you know, you could just straight up erase people from a shot now. <laughs> like all, all of these things are, you know, that, that like you would have to go do a reshoot or, you know, spend tens of thousands of dollars on visual effects. It's like, you can do these things now very easy. You came at the right time, man, because if it's tedious to do digital editing, I could not imagine sitting there and cutting tape and trying to match it back up together and then i'm being like no i, I don't like that and you're like, damn it took me eight hours to make this one minute scene and now i've got to tear it all apart that's no fun yeah i kind of came in like you know i learned a little bit of like of uh linear film editing when i went to school mm -hmm. uh but then you know non-linear digital editing you know was taking off at the same time so I knew enough about the one thing to then apply it to the other. And yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I, there's this really great book um, uh, written by Paul Hirsch who edited Star Wars. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I listen to his stories and I'm like all uh, – so a lot of these things apply to me now. But you're talking about, you know, a guy sitting in a room, you know, like – with, with a foot pedal that's running the reels and then he's got to look at it through a scope and then find the thing and mark it and then make a cut, set it aside, go and find the next cut point, mark it, cut it, go get the other thing, merge them together, put a piece of tape down <laughs> and then move on. It's like, Oh, uh, you know, and me, I'm sitting here, I'm doing that in like seconds. Yeah, absolutely. So you had mentioned uh, things being tough in Hollywood right now. And there's something that I, I wanted you to kind of explain to us, because I think when people hear, oh, Hollywood's going on strike, people immediately get mad. That's their mm -hmm. reaction for the most yeah. part. Whoa, what the fuck now? That, Tom Cruise, it's not 50 million movies, not enough. But that's not <laughs> what the strike is for. The no. strike is for like a key dolly grip that has to yeah. deliver pizzas because he can't make money, enough money to live working 10 hour days in Hollywood. And also... What the hell is a key dolly grip? <laughs> All right. It's a two-parter. Let me start with the first one. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question because I, while the strikes were going on, I spoke to a lot of people either back home or family members that like 
didn't understand or like maybe they had heard something on television. And I think, and you're exactly right that like, there's this, you know, misinformation or this idea that like Tom Cruise and uh, Nicole Kidman and all these people are going to be like out on the, out on the line striking. It's like, no, that's not true at all. It's like the people, the, the actors, you know, were out there are, you're talking about your background actors, mm-hmm. your day players, like supporting actors, like people that like, when you're watching a TV show, you're like, Oh, there's that guy. I notice him from that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the people that are no longer making a living doing this. And why that is, is because, um, well here, I'm, you know, I, I love that I'm having this conversation with you because you, because usually when I tell this story, nobody understands it from my perspective and you can, because you were there firsthand, but I tell people that media, it, it goes around in circles. Okay. And we were there in the two thousands working in a record store when you started to see like, they're going, Oh, nobody's buying physical media anymore. They're buying digital. So Mm -hmm. what are we going to do? And maybe you remember this, but there was, there was a Christmas, (laughs) there was a Christmas where they were like, I know what it is. We're going to put out albums on gift cards and you come in. Do you remember this? I don't remember. remember It was called called like music pass or something. And they sent it to us in boxes. And it was like the new Mariah Carey album and like a stack of like gift cards. Like you would buy like an after I got fired. No, 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 no. <laughs> it was like, it like, like you would with like iTunes gift cards. Right. And you right. would come in and, and it was ridiculous because who's going to come into a record store to buy a record and go, Oh, you know, I probably got a gift card sitting here somewhere. You know, it's like, it's like, Oh, you know, oh, I guess I'll just buy this, you know, blink 182 <laughs> gift card or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so they, they overcorrected and then, you know, then, you know, time goes by the next thing, you know, it's like now vinyls back. Yeah. And now, you know, so people are buying vinyl again and people mm-hmm. are starting to get gassed up about cassettes. And yeah. then I've even heard rumbling that like CDs are starting to become more popular again. So it just goes around in circles and the same thing happens in the movie industry. It just took 10 years longer, 10, 15 years longer for it to happen. Sure. So when <clears throat> Netflix went fully digital instead of, you know, they created the first, you know, uh, streaming shows being like orange is the new black and Hollywood was not prepared for this. So they've got all these contracts and they are, the contracts are built on studio system. So all of a sudden you start having this internet streamer make TV shows how do we how do we adjust for that because they're not a network mm-hmm. they're streaming on the internet so what do they so they had this contract called a new media contract and new media basically covers anything that's made for online okay so it could be a youtube video you know you know and, and as long as it's somewhere in streaming that kind of considers this and so this contract is extremely low budget. It's not the same thing as what you would make if you were working for like ABC or NBC, CBS, all those things. So, so as the need for streaming services kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, they were like, okay, they were like, we're just going to put everything under this new media contract. And 
television. I think I'm I think I'm kind of like going around in circles here, but it's like no, television right. television was based on uh commercials mm-hmm. and making money off of those advertisements, and then you would take that money, and then as the shows went into uh into you know on cable and uh, syndication, um the actors would receive a uh receive Roy- points residuals. from the royalties, residuals, all of those things, yeah. right? That's one of the arguments that I heard with the strike was some of these folks who were writing for Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever were talking about getting two hundred bucks, three hundred bucks on residual checks after the job was over. Yeah, like, I only so, had a guaranteed job for a year or whatever, and now this yeah. is all I have left. So the actors, the actors would make a living off of that. You know, they could pay their bills from their residuals, especially if you. We're on a show like Friends, and it went in the syndication forever. Right. You know, it's like you you could you could live off of that money. So now with these new media contracts, they're treating everything like it's a YouTube video, and they're and they're and the um, streamers like Netflix being number one. Mm-hmm. They were like, you we don't have to report any of these numbers to you because we don't have any like Nielsen ratings. Like we don't we don't have any numbers that we have to report to advertisers because we don't have advertisers. Hmm. So nobody knew how many people are actually watching a show and what those but, numbers are. They But didn't they have to they had to know though? I mean Netflix had to they, know. They, they knew, did. but they don't have to share it. They don't have to tell okay. anybody. Got so it. they could say that like this show right here is the number one show in the country. But who knows what it actually is? Mm-hmm. And so, and so, using you know, Orange Is the New Black as an example, it was mm-hmm. like it was like the hottest show in TV for like three or four seasons. And those actors came out and they were like, "Here's my residual check. It's like ninety cents for wow. a show." You know, it's a and slap so, in the face. Yeah. So that was the big argument: was that like all of these actors and stuff that used to make a living off their residuals were not making money anymore. <clears throat> and so the reason for the strikes was to restructure this idea because we had this huge boom coming out of COVID mm-hmm. where we need like content, 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 because prior to COVID you had Netflix, but then right before it, you had Disney plus came out mm-hmm. then like Peacock, then Apple TV plus uh, Paramount plus, And they were all like, make every, like, we need stuff, make everything. You got a, you got a script. We're going to make it like whatever. And so a lot of stuff got made in the last three years. And then they were like, what they realized was, oh, hold on a second. This subscription model doesn't work at all because a finite amount of people are subscribing to a service. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you've got Netflix. I'm sure Ryan's got Netflix. I've got Netflix. Who else needs Netflix? Mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like it's going to keep growing, right, you know. Right. So, you know, all of the streamers started running into that, and they were realizing, like, oh no, this isn't sustainable because there's no more money coming in. So, what are they doing now? Putting advertisements back in. So that's how it goes back in a circle. So just like the music industry, here we are again. We're going to put advertisements back into streaming shows so that we can make money. And then, you know, they're they're telling people like, well, you don't want advertisements? That's great. You could pay five yeah. or six dollars more a month to have that. And um, the issue that we're having right now, right this second, is that the strikes ended. The actors got their deal. The writers got their deal. My union, IATSE, is 
probably going to go on strike this year for the exact same reason. And what's going on is that there's no money. There's no money. They're basically all the streamers are like holding on to their cash and being very picky about what gets made right now. They're yeah. not, they're not spending money willy nilly like they were three years ago. Yeah. So now everybody is sitting around just going like, well, where's all the work? Like the strikes are over. Like why right. isn't production getting back up and running? And it's tough. And it's driven a lot of people, not only out of Los Angeles, but like out of the industry mm-hmm. and having to find other work. And, um, you know, I've been really blessed. I've been lucky that I've, I've stayed busy and I've pivoted when mm-hmm. I've needed to pivot. Um, but you know, I'm also hopelessly, you know, wishing that, <laughs> that things go back to the way they were, yeah. you know, prior to the pandemic because sure. things were great. You know, when you talk about actors like Tom Cruise and stuff, he's fine. He's going to be fine. His great, 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 great grandkids are going to be fine. Right. Um, but it is, you know, it would be like me doing my job because I like my job, doing a good job at it. And not and then still having to work another job that I maybe I hate because I can't make ends meet. Yeah. And I hate seeing like the Netflix guys like just rolling in money and then like you said, people being like, Oh, well, they they made that money on my back and here's my ninety cent check. Uh-huh. And and people, yeah, people I just wanted to get that out because I do I do think for the most part people think like, oh, these spoiled rich actors are going on strike because they want more money. And it's important you know, to kind of understand how it really works. So thanks for sharing that with us. That's, I, I know nobody really likes to hear, you know, strike, talk about a strike or whatever, but it's, it's important. So what is your most underrated horror movie of all time? Oh my God. Underrated horror film. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, Ryan, you got um, one you want to share while he's thinking. Uh, yeah, I got to think for it's a second. Kinda, it's, <laughs> it's a hard one. I knew it would be a curveball, but I would say, uh, like the first two third, well, maybe even three quarters of the 1999 House on Haunted Hill. Mm-hmm. That movie was, I think it was 99. It's one where they, uh, God, I hope I'm thinking of the right one. It's got Jeffrey Rush in it. Jeffrey, mm-hmm. It's Jeffrey Rush's birthday. He's this rich guy. He's, you know, everybody's going to, or, yeah, it's his wife's birthday. They're going to stay in this mansion. Uh, but it was previously owned by this doctor who conducted these bizarre experiments. And some of the stuff they do in it is so creepy. And maybe it's because I was, you know, younger when I watched it. But there's a scene where one of the girls is walking around with, like, a, Probably not even a mini DV camera. It's probably like the mini VHS or something. And they walk into this empty room and through the camera, she's seeing a guy like strapped down and struggling on an operating table while the doctor's about to go to work. And then she pulls it down and it's an empty room and pulls it back up. And it's the scenes there again. And it's like, so good and then it just turns into a goosebump story at the at the end it's terrible like the monster just pops out and is chasing them around it's like man just 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 read they had the walk it in ending just redo it redo the end find a satisfying way to do that it will eventually <laughs> yeah i mean it was they just had a bunch of these like they had a lot of suspense and a lot of like these little moments that were great and I guess they just couldn't find a satisfying conclusion. So it's just, 
we have to race to get out mm-hmm. and make it and then we win the prize because there's like a ten million dollar prize for staying there all night. Yeah, I can I can tell you that in terms of like underrated horror, I think that there's a lot of really good stuff on Shudder. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I think you would like if you haven't seen it is called Deadstream because I think it's got it, it probably touches home with some of the stuff you used to do, and uh, it's it's about a guy that is uh, essentially shooting like a uh, like a TikTok or a or a, a YouTube like live stream mm. and he decides to go into a supposed haunted house and he sets up all these cameras throughout the house to capture it all and then uh shit hits the fan <laughs> and it's all but it's all it's all told through the cameras in the house oh, so it's like what what whatever he's shooting on his gopro or like the surveillance cameras that he sets up so it, it none of it ever like pops out and it's like a movie movie it's all told through like the cameras that he sets up that's a great one and then there's um yeah. um there's one that i did called who invited them that's really good it's a uh it's a home invasion story that uh basically preys on you know uh millennials who have parties and are afraid about who shows up <laughs> uninvited to their house it's me uh, <laughs> um yeah, there's a lot of really great stuff that like doesn't get a lot of attention, but uh, is worth checking out on Shutter. Yeah, Shutter's a, a great service. I, I yeah. So I mean, you can find, and that's something I was going to bring up too on Shutter. You can find all those weird, crazy, obscure horror movies that you're looking for, and I know there's people out there that are strictly like campy horror movie fans, and you can find so much on shutter for just a couple bucks a month it's it's cheap and has Mm -hmm. good content so yeah i don't remember which service it's on but one of the movies i really enjoyed in the last year or two was willie's wonderland oh yeah with nicholas cage like it's i don't know if it's exactly a horror movie but it's just super good it's it's I don't even want to spoil anything from it. Nicolas Cage is never afraid in the movie, but everybody else is. It falls like kind of a teen horror movie setup, but it's another one of those movies where they're the filmmakers aware of the joke the whole time. And that's the purpose of it. And it was fantastic. And some of that stuff I never would have found without some of these streaming services, putting this stuff up there. So I guess there is some good to that, that, some of the smaller movies can get out there or lower budget or stuff where they're maybe not going to risk a theatrical release. Yeah. But so you're talking about uh Nicholas Cage Ford Coppola, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nicholas Cage Ford Coppola. So, so for my movies, um, one of them you guys have probably seen, I don't know that it's underrated because I think it got, you know, high ranks on popcorn and rotten tomatoes, but hush, I think is the name of the movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. I believe it's on Netflix and it's a deaf lady at a cabin and she is being, you know, like kind of cut off from her neighbors and, and being kind of singled out to be, uh, I guess, eventually murdered. But, you know, she has to find ways to tell when people are trying to get in her house because she can't hear. So that's Mm -hmm. a good one. And then two that, uh, maybe are a little bit more popular. I thought 13 ghosts was really good. I didn't think it was, uh, a scary movie really but i thought it was cool and i liked the images of the ghosts i thought that was pretty cool um and then darkness falls 
I think is fantastic. And that's, I think, 1999 too. It's about a this lady who's called the Tooth Fairy who comes and collects children's teeth. But if you see her, she kills you. Uh, but this guy, like she cannot go in the light at all. It has to be dark. So this guy who's been trying to be killed by her for, you know, 20 years, he carries flashlights around with him and all this stuff. Good movie. So check that out after you watch all of uh, Patrick's stuff. <laughs> so I kind of wonder what you think, Patrick, about two things. If we can continue on the movie stuff before we get to whatever else you want to talk about, Jay. Mm-hmm. One, do you think that there's an over-reliance on editing and post-production? Because I have heard that it's almost like a meme at this point to just be like, ah, we'll fix it in post. And that a lot of the the flop busters that we've seen are kind of because of I guess filmmaking teams going in without a, a, a really solid plan or a well thought out roadmap for how the movie's going to go and they just hope that when everything gets into editing they'll be able to cut together the right scenes or the right takes or the right improvised moments to make everything flow and that some of these ballooned budgets are because of over-reliance on editing and visual effects to fix mistakes that maybe should have been caught and reshot in the moment. Yeah, I would say yes and no. I uh, say yes because technology is changing and making things easier to do. Like I mentioned before, like I think that now if you're on set and you can't accomplish something in camera, it can be done, you know, sometimes for a fraction of the amount of money, than it would be to if you had done it, you know, on set. And um, so I think that that is a crutch that, you know, it's, it's fascinating for me because if I'm, if I'm in the edit and I'm like, well, great, I don't have this thing, I can't do it. Or we don't have this performance or we don't have the, you know, the shirt is not, you know, aged. I can make changes like that, you know, and just be like, okay, cool. Um, but, you know, does that mean like, hey, let's get Henry Cavill in here with a mustache that he can't shave off and we'll just fix it later? <laughs> like, I don't think so. I don't think that's a great idea. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, and I say um, no, because I work a lot in, you know, indie features and we don't tend to have those kinds of budgets where like we could just go fix something. Whereas like something like a justice league or the flash or some other just chaotic, you know, big budget movie that came out, you know, could easily just be like, here you go. Here's, here's, you know, half a million dollars, go get that thing that you need, you know, yeah. or more here's $5 million, go get that thing you need. Wow. Um, so yeah, it is definitely a little bit of both. And then the other question Sorry, it wasn't. It was. I did ask for two. You do you think Pluto is going to end up winning the streaming wars? Pluto, I love Pluto. <laughs> I saw a YouTuber kind of saying, you know, Pluto's been the one that's been free and ad supported the whole time, and that's kind of the way a lot of these other ones are going—a reduced monthly cost mm-hmm. and ads on top of it. And Pluto's got some decent stuff. There are some, you know, indie movies that I've discovered on there, just because every once in a while I turn it on for background noise. Yeah, I. I think that um, possibly Pluto, but I've also heard, I think Tubi, I think is another one where it's like they are purchasing movies, independent movies, and like paying pretty well for them. Mm-hmm. Um, that that filmmakers are 
able to kind of make their money back off of making deals with Tubi. So um, I do think that there's there's a business model there that is working for them and they should keep doing that. Um, I do, from my perspective, and I've been telling people these horror stories now for over a year and I kind of seem to be right. So maybe I'll be <laughs> right about this. But I do think that like we're going to get into a world where like there might still be a Netflix if they can hang on. They're having a lot of issues though. But I think what you will see happen is Apple TV will continue to succeed and Amazon Prime Video will also continue to succeed because they are two networks that have, you know, other forms of income. Right. Yeah. So Amazon can continue to, you know, buy scripts, make things, make put movies out. I forget what they just had. They just had something where it's like they put it out in theaters for like two weeks and like now it's coming out on on uh, on the streamer. So I think you'll see those. Probably Peacock will be fine. Um, I think there's already talks that Paramount might be getting bought out. So it's like. Yeah, I think they're talking about it getting merged with Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers, Warner yeah. Discovery. So and and Warner Brothers owns HBO. So um yeah, I think that like things are gonna change in a not so great way in the next, I would say by the end of this decade. And you know, like I said about Netflix, it's like Netflix will survive if they do the right thing, but like it it is just sort of you kind of see them sort of like deteriorating. But I think that like all of these, the streaming boom that we had three years ago is already falling apart. And mm -hmm. so I think that, um, I think that it'll be much different in the next five years. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people talking about, I mean, just, the, just a side note, no, like no question here, but I feel like a lot of people are talking about piracy again. Cause I knew a lot of people 15, 20 years ago that would say, if there was a legal way for me to get this stuff, I would absolutely do it, but I can't. So I have to, pirated and then a lot of things were available in a pretty convenient way but i watched this video where this kid was talking about i have whatever it was like 40 movies on dvd on that shelf mm -hmm. and i would have to subscribe to five different streaming services to get access to those and yeah. that's crazy yeah i think that um you know again in in circles like physical media is coming back just in the same way it did with music final coming back like people are starting to realize that it's like if you have your dvd collections and you got rid of you know it's like you know we used to sell box sets of like seinfeld and i'm like why do i need these i can literally watch seinfeld on three different streamers right now yeah but it's like if if tomorrow they decide i think this happened with friends where they were like we're gonna take friends off of netflix and put it on hbo so now it's like okay well i don't have my friends dvds I can't watch it on Netflix. Now I got to go buy an HBO subscription to watch it. Yeah. So, um, and then people have also been talking about how movies that they've purchased digitally just being gone one day. And mm -hmm. you're like, I paid for that. Why don't mm -hmm. I own that? Mm -hmm. And they, and, and so um, I think there's going to be a real drive back to physical media, but it's funny because at the exact same moment, you've got like Best Buy saying we're done with physical media. Yeah, Best Buy is getting rid of Blu-rays, and Walmart and Target are selling vinyl records again. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sam Goody reunion, there. baby. <laughs> exactly. So I think it, it, it it's I'm probably not far off about this, but like 
Best Buy is going to make this decision and then they're going to be like, fuck, go back. <laughs> and, and within a couple of years, you're going to start seeing physical media again. Because just like with vinyl, because if you don't know the story about vinyl records, like there were literally down to like two record plants in all of America that made vinyl records still. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden this huge boom happened. And you had Taylor Swift and Adele and they were like, we want a hundred thousand copies of my record on vinyl or whatever. And they had these two record plants in America, basically churning them out that nobody else could get records made. And that's where there was a huge stopgap that basically uh, kept the vinyl record industry backlogged for 13 months. And, and, and so you had people like Jack White who were stepping up and saying like, I think Jack White and Metallica uh, started their own record plants and they called out, the record labels and saying, you have the money to fix this. Start opening up record plants again. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, one, one, how much time do you have, Patrick? Do you need yeah, to go? As long, to- you, oh, well, as long as you want. Okay. Cool. Um, so I wanted to ask, uh, now I know one of your favorite actors, Jared Leto, and <laughs> of all time is, is he still <laughs> or is that just somebody that you you know you liked back in the day you like some of his early movies because i think patrick or uh, ryan and i sorry talked about morbius or was it mobius <laughs> morbius 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 yeah. and it just i'm like okay man this guy is a great actor and i just got an email from 30 seconds to mars Really? Like literally. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. You said that. <laughs> but it, it's like when they they show the whatever he turns into, the vampire or whatever, and he's jumping around and, and I'm just like, man, that that really looks like somebody could do that in just a cheap home editing studio. And and I feel like if you're going to make a movie with a big time actor and it seems like the movie had a big budget, I just feel like they didn't spend any of it on effects. What what did you think about that movie? Me personally? Yeah. I didn't see it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> probably I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I'll probably never see it. Yeah. No, I, uh, 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 Jared Leto, um, I think really fell off after he won his Academy Award, which I had predicted too. I, when I, when I saw that movie, the Dallas Fires Club, I was like, he's getting an Oscar for this. And he did, but he just has not really recovered since. Um, yeah. Well, he's I done a he, lot of really weird stuff. Like he did Mr. Nobody, and then he did Morbius, and he was the Joker. It's like he's just trying all kinds of different things now. Yeah, I think he's I think he's very, very capable of being very good at what he okay. does. I also think that he tries way too tough or way too hard. Like, I think he's just... <laughs> Well, I think he's probably, I mean, you know, we, now you're still a regular dude, but if you're an actor and, you know, you've got millions of dollars in the bank, people, you know, paying you to endorse Subway and women throwing themselves at you and drugs whenever you want, you know, you never know how it's going to affect somebody either. And, and, you know, we see that a lot in, in Hollywood where people have a dark turn. Um, I saw a picture of Emilio with uh, Corey Feldman and, yeah. and, and that I was just like, yeah, that's the perfect example. So, all right. Yeah, Corey Ham and Corey Feldman are the perfect examples <laughs> of how things can go wrong. 
Yeah, and who knows what kind of trauma they may have gone through as kids. You know, Macaulay Culkin had a rough time and stuff. But in any case, um, is there a director or a particular actor or just somebody that you're dying to work with? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I think there there are, you know, a few people that definitely, you know, you see and you're like, oh, you know, I just I just saw the movie uh, Lisa Frankenstein which was directed by Zelda Williams, Robin Williams' daughter. Okay. And this movie had everything I've loved. I mean, since I was a kid, like, and I loved like early Tim Burton stuff, mm-hmm. like, and I mean, early, early Tim Burton, um, it had that vibe to it. Like, I feel like if enough people see this movie, it's a cult classic slam dunk. Um, really charming, you know, fun production design, great script, you know? And so that's the kind of thing that I, when I see a movie like that, I'm like, I want to work on that. Um, You know, you mentioned Hush, which was directed by Mike Flanagan. I got to work with Mike Flanagan a little bit on a project, um, but he's a guy that like, if you've ever seen Midnight Mass on Netflix, Mm -hmm. like that's a perfect TV show. you know, he's, he's fantastic and very smart. And, you know, I think, um, you know, could be a savior for the film industry. <laughs> um, and then, um, uh, and, and then, yeah, there's just other, you know, I think, I think I'm, I, I don't know. It's hard because a lot of times like accomplished directors, they have their people. Gotcha. You know, I've, I've gotten by, um, working with a lot of new directors, you know, very few directors that I've worked with, like get, you know, another shot or get to make another movie. And so, but usually, you know, I'm, I've been lucky to work with those people several times, but you know, when there are people that I'm like, Oh, I lo- I'd love to work with them. Like I want to go hunt them down and like try to get them. It's tough because they've got the people that they like working with. And so sure. it's hard to be like, Hey, uh, you don't want to work with that person anymore. You, uh, you, you want to work with me? And yeah. you're like, well, what, what do you got? You know? Sure. Um, so it's tough, but, uh, but I more so see projects that I like and gotcha. I'm like, that's something I want to work on, you know? Um, and, and I consider myself super versatile. Like I don't just do horror. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But I could do, I could do drama and comedy and things of that sort. So there, there are, you know, projects that I, you know, stuff like, um, the boys, you know, on, uh, Amazon is a great show that's like, Oh, I watched that. And I'm like, oh, or, or, or what we do in the shadows. I think mm-hmm. what we do in the shadows for me is like a dream project. And unfortunately they're shooting their last season right now. So, um, I will not get a ch- chance to work on that show, but, well, um, it's stuff like that. That's cool. Do you, um, so one of the things that I've kind of noticed, and I, I feel like I keep going back to Walking Dead, but how is it different when you're editing a TV show as opposed to a movie? I mean, I would assume that a movie, they probably have like a soft date that it has to be finished and then like a hard date. But I, I feel like if you're at least back in the day, I, I know that everything's like binge watch now, but when they used to, you know, they would they would film a season and then release it week by week. Is it, is it something where they, you know, on TV shows, it's just 
madness. Like you have to just work 15 hour days to get everything done because there's another, you know, eight hour episode or one hour episode being shot in two days, you know, like, like people don't realize like a movie is an hour and a half, but these shows are 40, 45 minutes. So that's a half a movie, but you get, Mm -hmm. you know, 16 of them in a season. So it's a ton of work. Yeah. uh, A lot of the TV projects that I've worked on, they, they don't have, they they have like hard deadlines, but they're not like, you know, air dates kind of thing. Gotcha. You know? So it's like you might have like, okay, the project's got to be wrapped up by like May 1st. Mm-hmm. And then you do that. And then it doesn't come out until, <laughs> you know, December or something like that. Sure, so sure. so there's those things. But like even like right now, because of, of the strikes, there were a lot of shows that went back into the production like in November and you're going to start seeing them roll out kind of right around now. I think like Abbott elementary just came back and like, those are the types of things that you're describing where they're, okay. they're in there and they're like, okay, this one's done. Start on the next one. Okay. Da, 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 you know, um, the type of stuff that, that I've worked on that shoots a lot like a feature does where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you kind of shoot your scenes based on a location. So it's like, if you've got a show and there are three episodes that take place at this one house. They shoot all of that stuff in a row. And then when it comes to you, it, you know, you can see it's like, this is, you know, episode 101, scene five. This is episode 103, scene seven. This is mm-hmm. episode 108. And then, and then it's, it's set up. You have sort of like different projects and stuff. So it's like, if I'm working on episode one, all of that footage for that episode is in this one project that I'm working on. And then like all the footage for episode five is over here. And so they just, so usually have an assistant editor that goes in and like helps sort of like spread that around and get it in the right place and get it organized. That makes sense. I, I, man, that would just suck though. Like as, as someone who, you know, has, basically been editing podcasts like i want to do it all immediately like we do a show and i'm like oh i want this ready to go immediately so that would mm-hmm. be like frustrating for me you know oh to sit around and wait yeah uh, yeah absolutely i mean i mean we were talking about um shelby oaks chris duckman's movie and you know i essentially finished the edit of that a year ago and then we had a bunch of we had a couple reshoots and some vfx work and then we were doing sound mix. We went to Toronto and we did sound mix and the strikes were going on. So we couldn't get the actors to finish their ADR for the sound mix. So we basically had to wait for that to finally finish. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to finish the sound mix post strike. So it's like, yeah. So, you know, I've, you know, in a way I've been done on that film for over a year now and I'm still waiting for it to, you know, have its release. So it, there are, there are a lot of like, moments like that where you're sitting there waiting and you're like okay is this gonna i had this what like season two of bonding on netflix like we finished that in um well so the strike or so not the strike the uh, uh quarantine happened and mm-hmm. we were we were working on that and it was early march of 2020 and we they sent us home and we finished the shows from home very quickly and they were like great no notes and, you know, I'm sitting around thinking, like, nobody's shooting anything. Nobody's making anything. Mm-hmm. Like, they're probably going to rush this out, right? No. <laughs> no. They didn't. They put it out at the end of January of 2021. And just, like, just 
Well, if if you don't mind me asking, I'm assuming and hoping for you, you get paid as you do your work. You don't have to be yeah. like, okay, well, when this comes out in two years, I'm going to have a paycheck. No, exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's it's basically you know a lot of the stuff is freelance or it's an independent contractor kind of thing. Gotcha. So yeah, you do get paid weekly, just like you would like on a normal job. And then you know at the end of it, you know you are essentially laid off and then you go and you find another job. So that's stressful too. I got to believe. <clears throat> yeah. Cause it's one thing I, for actors there, you know, if you're a feature actor, you don't really maybe even necessarily ever have to do another movie or you can wait for the perfect thing to come along, but yeah, yeah you kind of have to be like, okay, I'll do it. Let's uh, what would be really frustrating. And I don't know how, and you may have this written into contracts and stuff. What happens if you're editing show a, whatever it is, doesn't matter. And then someone else comes along and says, Oh, I need you for this feature film. Then what happens? Do you, do you have someone else come in and take over the job yeah. that you had or, yeah, I think more so you you find that like if a certain situation comes along, um, you know, sometimes an editor will replace themselves with somebody they trust. Mm. Um, you know, I've I've definitely had situations where I'm working on something and then something else comes up. I scare me was one of them. Mm. I was working on another movie um, that. Uh, uh, that's called uh, how to deter a robber, which is a lot of fun. It's kind of like home alone meets Fargo. And, um, <clears throat> and I was working on that movie and the director got called into jury duty. And oh. she was like, and she was like, it's no big deal. You know, I'm going to go in, you know, you know, tell them this, that, and the other. And then, you know, you know, we'll be back at it on Wednesday. I was like, right. okay, no, she got, she got picked for jury and put on a trial for three months. Oh. So all of a sudden she was not available anymore to, to finish the movie. And coincidentally, I got this email about scare me and Josh Rubin was somebody that I always wanted to work with. And I read mm. the script and it was fantastic. And I was like, I got to figure out how to make this work. And so since technically we were in a holding pattern on the other movie, I jumped on to doing that movie. And then when the time came, it was just like scheduling myself. So I was like, all right, we spent a couple of days working on this and then it's a couple of days working on that. And then, you know, whatever. And then, you know, eventually there's always this sort of, sort of um, cross that bridge when we come to it vibe gotcha. that I think, because what I have found over the years is that if you spend a lot of time worrying about your schedule lining up perfectly, it never will. Sure. And especially post pandemic and all the sort of weird, you know, the flux that we've been in in the yeah. industry that like I, any, you know, there are projects that I've been told were happening. I think I would easily say there are like four or five movies that I was supposed to do over mm -hmm. the last three years. And I haven't done a single one of them. All of the projects I've worked on have all been things that just like came out of nowhere. But all the movies I was supposed to do, all of the movies that I was like told to hold dates for, mm. none of them happened. That's so, sucks. yeah. So I, so I've definitely had to learn the hard way to just be like, go with the flow, cross up bridge when we come to it. And then also, yeah, like just situations where, you know, if you're, if you're already on a job or you think you're double booked or whatever, it's like, 
almost always, if it's a good opportunity for you, do it and then just figure it out later. Gotcha. You know, and then if you have to, you have to be like, hey, I'm sorry, this other opportunity came along and I got to replace myself. You know, sorry, I'm going to go play for the Yankees. (laughs) So I know that uh, Scare Me was kind of a a special deal because you didn't have, you know, 40 different sets that you had, you know, locations that you had to go shoot at and stuff. But how long did that take? But like from, from when, when they said, okay, here's, you know, the first meeting to discuss this to uh, when it was ready to roll. I'd say about three, three and a half months, something like that. Yeah. I mean, typically they do. I, I would say on average, a movie takes 12 weeks. Okay. Um, you know, it could take a lot longer, obviously. Sure. Uh, you know, I think like, you know, if you're working on Dune, it, you know, you're, yeah. or I think like, uh, Avatar uh or something. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Eddie Hamilton was working on the last, um, Mission Impossible movie for like the last five years or something like that. Like it's something crazy. Um, but, uh, yeah, like with Indies, I think it's, for me, it's a matter of like budget plus time. So you, you know, I used to, I used to take a movie and if they came to me or whatever, and they were like, you know, we only have X amount of dollars and I'd be like, great. And then the next thing I know, I'm spending six months working on something for one month's pay. So, so it really, it really gets into the world now where it's like, okay, what are you working with? Uh, You know, or this is, this is what I'm asking for. Can you do that? No. Okay. What are you working with? And then, taking that budget and then figuring out like, well, what can I give you time wise for that amount of money? So that's rough. man. But, but I would say typically, <laughs> I would say typically like 12 weeks because I try to, you know, if it takes them like, you know, 15 or 20 days to shoot a movie, it's going to take me at least 20 to 25, maybe 30 days to do an assembly cut. Yeah. So, <clears throat> So like, for instance, this movie I'm, I'm working on right now, they shot it in 15 days. So I'm kind of looking at it as like, well, that's going to at least take me four weeks to edit, mm-hmm. you know? So that's four weeks right there. And then you got to get into working with the director and that could go one or two ways. You know, it could be like, <laughs> it could be like, you're, you're in there with the director every single day for two months, or, you know, it could be like, Hey, they watched the cut. Here's three pages worth of notes. And then the next time they come in, they're like, here's two pages worth of notes. And then the next day they're like, here's one page worth of notes. And then you're like, great, we got it. Now let's show it to some people. You do some test screenings. Then you do notes based on that test screening. You do a couple more and then it's done. So, I mean, all in all, I would say at least like three months yeah, on average. That doesn't sound like as much fun as I hoped it would be. Got to be honest. With you. <laughs> I, it goes, it, it, it's like a roller coaster, man, because it's like my least favorite part of editing is the assembly because you're basically given like a blank canvas and say like, make something out of this. I, I sometimes I equate it to like, um, like a, like somebody giving you a puzzle, but it's got a bunch of broken pieces and missing pieces and you got to figure out how to put it back together. So that's my least favorite part. But then like once it's together and you start showing people, you show the director and like they've got ideas and then you show other people and like they have thoughts and then you start like rediscovering footage that you missed originally that like all of a sudden now is like an epiphany. Yeah. That's my favorite part of editing. Like when you're like three or four revisions in and the movie that you thought you understood is now something completely different. That makes sense. Ryan, I have taken up 
a ton of time, um, why don't you ask any movie questions that you have? And we'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Oh, I don't have a ton of. I have a yes, ton. you do. I don't have any. I don't have a ton <laughs> on the top of my head that I'm really thinking about. Uh, I mean, I guess one of the questions that I'm curious about, just from, you know, I'm I'm essentially like a hobbyist. What uh, type of equipment and software do you tend to use? I mean, I know a lot of people can make pretty fantastic stuff using a MacBook and uh, you know Final Cut. But, you know, what what do you tend to use and how much data does that tend to take up? Because I know <clears throat> in editing like an hour of YouTube videos, I've had project files in Final Cut balloon up to 700 gigs just with Final Cut producing proxies and things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I go back and forth between Premiere Pro and Avid Media Composer. Um, I spent a lot more time in Premiere uh and that's just out of personal preference but like i think both of them have their pros and cons and so a lot of the times i put it on production to tell me what they want to do so you know they might say like well specifically like we need somebody to cut this in avid because of x y and z okay so it's good to know if you're working professionally it's good to know a little bit of everything because you never know when you're going to walk in and then somebody's going to go uh hey we're cutting this on final cut x and you're like what (laughs) so so um but more so it's avid you know it's like i think that this industry is basically an avid town so so it's you have to know that because almost all the jobs are going to be on that and then sort of more fewer with premiere but premiere is one of the things that it's like my personal preference so um you know if i'll ask somebody and they'll tell me like oh i think you know it's up to you or whatever i kind of look at like the quality of the project or the the needs of the project as well because like a movie might have a lot of like graphic needs or visual effects needs or whatever um that's going to be something that i'd i'd rather do in premiere because of creative cloud you can basically send files straight to after effects do a little work send it straight back to you know premiere hit save and, and it's like boom right in you know david fincher you know, prefers the creative cloud on all of his movies. And so, but if it's something that's like more dialogue driven, I might want to use Avid Media Composer because they have script sync and I can basically bring the script in in a text form and then it uses AI to scan the footage and then put put the footage where it matches with the script. That's awesome. So as I'm, mm. so as I'm going through and if I'm in the room with the director and the director goes, I don't like this line, I don't like the way she says, I love you. Can you show me every other version of her saying, I love you? I can, <laughs> I can go into script sync and find the line, lasso it and hit play. And it'll go, I love you. I love you. I love you. Like it'll show every different version of how they did it. And that's a huge time saver. Hmm. That's awesome. And speaking of AI, the one thing I was thinking about while you were talking about your least favorite part being trying to trying to figure out like the first pieces of the puzzle. I feel like for me, I mean, AI is a little scary 
in terms of what the future is going to look like for people uh-huh. whose jobs can be replaced by that. Like, I feel like a paralegal is a type of job that could be maybe not easily replaced by it, but could be greatly augmented by it. Um, <clears throat> but when it comes to Jay and I have used AI to help create, you know, uh, just scripts, different ways of phrasing things. That's how I got started with it. Cause I owned a bar. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's only so many ways I can say we're having trivia on Thursday. It's like, I'm not going to write it for the 30th time and be like, yeah, trivia again on Thursday. I need to find (laughs) some other way of phrasing it. Yeah. And I feel like AI was really helpful. I'd be like, say it like Donald Trump. Say it like how South Park would think Donald Trump would say it. Like, Uh say it like you're in Always Sunny, something like that. And it would come up with these different things that I could then refine. Do you see... uh, I mean, this is probably maybe not quite crept into the industry so much yet, but do you see AI kind of coming in to help sort of give you an initial skeleton to work with? No, it, you- it, no, it, it already has. And um, I've been using it in a lot of like sound work. You know, mm-hmm. I think that like, you know, I'm, I'm not the greatest when it comes to sound mixing, but like there's, you know, certain... Um, in Adobe Creative Cloud, they use it's called Adobe Sensei, and it in it is their version of AI, which basically can like analyze audio and clean it up. Mm. You know, these are all things. It was like we used to have to have plugins or EQ and all this stuff that you know if if or, or you know if something's like really noisy or a car drives by or something like well we can't use that take we got to go find another one or we got to do ADR. There's technology now that we can just scan it. You guys might use this. It's um, Adobe Podcasts, and you can mm. go on there, <clears throat> take a clip of audio, throw it up, and it will clean it up, and then you just download it and throw it right in, and it sounds like it's in a studio. Hmm. So I've been using hmm. stuff like that already for a year. And then uh, I mentioned before uh, there's generative fill AI now that has become uh, just insanely handy. You know, it, you can do it in Photoshop. You can do it in After Effects where, you know, if somebody's walking around in the background of a shot or there's a, you know, there's a picture on the wall that you can't get cleared, you know, it's like you just throw it into After Effects, lasso it, and it'll analyze the footage and it's gone. It's like it never existed. So yeah. <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff like that. But I do think that I, with that, there are some dangers and there are, there's definitely, you know, I just yesterday had to make a really quick video for something that I did not want to spend time editing on a Sunday. And so I threw it into TikTok and I I took all the footage and threw it into TikTok and then hit auto cut. And it automatically, you know, chopped up the footage to what it thought were the best moments. And of course I had to go in and like zhuzh it a little bit, but I was like, this, this took me 10 minutes of what probably would have taken me an hour to edit myself. So, so I think there are, and there are, I've seen things that are definitely like very worrisome of, of where this could go, where basically you could have a prompt to say like, you know, make make a commercial that looks like this and like it'll either find footage from a library or 
what was announced yesterday was like so within the yeah, yeah within the last couple of days where it's like now you can just type in exactly what you want and it'll create it for you like it's wild yeah what scares me the most is that you're gonna have some executive who will say well why do we really need writers for this do we really need well i have a theory on that. for that because i mean yeah. it's just none of it's quite the same i've messed with the major ones that are available online. I've also got like a PC that's barely powerful enough to run LLMs locally and you can run them locally without some of the safeguards. They can kind of be a little bit more unhinged than the ones that are online. It will be like, no, I can't, I can't write about this. I can't write about, I can't do impressions, whatever. And it's always very derivative. You know, it's not particularly original. Sometimes I feel like it's good for a little inspiration or or giving you an idea that maybe you didn't have before or structure to work off of. But I dread the day that somebody puts out an all AI, you know, production or an all AI episode of a TV show. I mean, this is what I'll say about that. That is going to happen. And and it, it will happen because somebody has got to do it. In order for everybody else to then say, fuck that. That's a bad, (laughs) yeah, to say that's a bad idea. You know, it's like a couple years ago, there's this movie called Tangerine that was shot on an iPhone. And everybody was like, you could shoot a movie on an iPhone. But guess what? People are not making movies on iPhones. Like you might shoot a scene (laughs) on an iPhone. Like you might be like, hey, I... I think Top Gun is a great example. Like they were putting GoPros and iPhones like in the cockpits of the airplanes to make Mm. Top Gun Maverick. Like, so, you know, somebody is going to do it. Somebody's going to say, here's a completely AI generated script and we shot the movie or they're going to be like, here's an AI generated script with AI actors, AI scenery. It's going to happen. And then people are going to go, yeah, no, we're good. And they're and just like, all of media in a circle, they're going to go right back to where they were before. Um, so I think it is inevitable that the thing will happen, but you will never be able to remove the human element because like you were saying, it's like you might, you can tell, you can tell uh, I I've done this. It's like, you could tell, you know, chat GPT, like write me an episode of ALF and all it's doing is it's going through any episode of ALF that it can find on the internet and then recreating words and phrases and action lines and things from already existing stuff. So for it to, for it to create something that's wholly original, I don't know. And then you have to, somebody's going to have to watch over it. So somebody's going to have to then get that script and then go, okay, yeah, no, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't work. Like, can't do that. Like, you know, it's kind of like when you see the, the AI generated images and they've got like seven fingers and you're like, what, you know, it's like, there there has to be some sort of like overseeing that like as an editor, if, if you created a project that was like, here's all this footage, edit this together for me. I would still have to go through that footage and be like, well, that's not right. Can't can't do that. You can't put that's a lie because they lie sometimes too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they get stuff wrong or they yeah, they do horrifying yeah. things. Like I ran a version of Dolly on my local PC and I was like, give me a picture of a blonde girl dancing or whatever. And it did it, but it didn't render any arms for her. And it was horrifying. Yeah. The thing like, well, that, I guess I didn't say she had to have arms. It's so, just terrifying. 
it's she looks like a Picasso painting. So there's no getting rid of it altogether, but like <laughs> what what we can do is that we can learn to use it as a tool. Because like for mm-hmm. me, when I see Sora, I'm like, oh my god, you know, I had a I had a a, a movie just this past fall where like we didn't have a shot of the car going down a desert road. And so then we went to rent the car and the owner of the car was like, you can't take it more than like five minutes away. And we're like, so we can't take it to the desert where we can get the shot that we need for the cut. Well, that's awful. So we need to have it drive down a road and then send it to VFX and then have them change the background. But if I, something like Sora, if I can be like, have a pink Cadillac drive down a desert road at dusk away from camera and it creates that for me and it's royalty free. You know, it didn't cost a dime to go shoot. Like, that's incredible. That's, you know, or like with music videos or whatever, if like, I'm like, I need a shot of, I need a shot overlooking Los Angeles that like then goes into a tunnel or something like that. And like Sora can do that. That's fantastic. Because what's that going to cost me to go shoot, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that's the only way to stay ahead. I just had a conversation with somebody from a major tech company like personally, but they were talking about kind of being a little worried about AI. And I was like, the only way to stay ahead of it is to get to use it. Like, yeah, get comfortable with it, know mm-hmm. what it can do, figure out how it fits into things. Yeah. Because, because uh, eventually it's just going to become part of the workflow. Anybody that's like, you know, I, I've been telling students for this for years, which is like, you have to be on top of everything because the moment that you're not, it's going to steamroll you and then you're going to become obsolete. And, you know, the people younger than you that are coming out of college that do know how to use these things, they're going to be the ones getting the jobs. So, yeah, any sort of new tech that comes in, like you have to, like, learn it, adapt it, you know, figure out how it works for you, you know. But in terms of, like, it being a much bigger thing, like, will we go to a theater and see, you know, like, like Avatar? Like, could we see Avatar completely AI? Sure. Do I want to go spend money on that? No. But, like, will somebody do it? I'm sure they will. No. Yeah, I'm worried about a world where it's mostly AI and then you have kind of like you have non-GMO foods where you have to yeah. go to Whole Foods or like a specialty place. Like I don't want to go like have to seek out human created art. <laughs> but but it's just like it's just like I'm saying with music, right? It's like you could you could listen to an album digitally, but like what have humans done? They've gone back to listening to it on vinyl. Yeah. Sounds yeah, so I have hundreds of records on a shelf back here. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there I don't know. It's just a totally different experience. There's like a ritual to it I've learned to appreciate. Like pour a drink, put the record on, brush it, put the needle down, like yeah. sit down and relax as opposed to throwing my AirPods and tell Siri what I want to listen to and yeah. just kind of sit there or walk around or grocery shop or whatever else. It's a different experience. I'm sure your viewers are probably going like, when are these guys going to talk about cryptids or something? Yeah, both of them. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, So, I mean, that seems, Ryan, do you have any other uh, movie-related questions? Because this seems like a good time to transition into his other talent. Oh, hi. Y'all didn't know. And we'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. So, moving on, 
Uh, you might be happy to know that at work today, I played some occults and I played some Nothing Still. It went over really well and everybody was dancing Magnum Girl. <laughs> Tell us about the beginning with Nothing Still, how it started. I know... Uh, you know, Emilio's a big part of that and he's, you know, moved on with you. But tell us about the beginnings of Nothing Still. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll try to tell this in a way that encompasses both projects. But okay. Um, yeah, I, I think that like when I was a teenager um, and I was really into new metal, the funny thing was all this, all this new metal music was actually born out of a combination of like eighties hair metal rap and new wave music Mm -hmm. and specifically, you know, uh, like post-punk new wave shoegaze. Um, and so bands like Deftones that we were loving in you know, the late nineties, early two thousands were very heavily influenced by bands like the cure and Mm -hmm. Depeche Mode and, um, the Smiths. And so I sort of naturally gravitated from one thing to the other and I wanted to make something that was, you know, electronic, but high energy. I also really loved Prince and the revolution. Like, so I wanted to have a band that was like that. And so out of that, I created uh, the band, nothing still. And so we, we did our thing. And I always, I always joke that, um, we were like the killers before the killers happened because I very specifically remember being in a radio station, doing an interview with nothing still. And the, uh, the DJ at the radio station was like, is there anything you want to play? And we were like, no, 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 play whatever. And they were like, have you heard this new song by the killers? And she put on, somebody told me their first single. And we were all sitting there like, are you serious? Like they beat us to it. Yeah. And, um, and so, so yeah, it just never really took off. And, um, you know, uh, years later, uh, Emilio, the lead singer of nothing still. And I, um, we, well, actually we started, we kind of reunited around 2018 and the technology had changed just like with, with film, mm-hmm. the technology had changed and we were now able to do things for a fraction of the cost of what we would have right, done it right. in the two thousands and do it remotely. And so even though I was living in Los Angeles and everybody else was living in Missouri, we started writing a new album and, uh, Emilio, the lead singer, he kind of started finding his love of music again, because he had sold off all of his equipment. He, sure. he was like, he had DJed for a couple of years and like, just wasn't really doing much. And so, you know, he started picking up a guitar again and, you know, playing with, um, you know, recording software and realizing all the things that I knew, which was that like, you didn't need, you know, amps and, you know, you know, all these, uh, you know, pedals and everything to, like do these things or like go to a studio and spend thousands of dollars right, right. recording. Like you could do all this at home. And he started demoing music that was the type of music that like he and I loved when we were 17 or 18 years old. Sure. And I was like, I love that. I want to do something with that. It doesn't work for nothing still. So what do we do with it? Gotcha. And so that's how the occult project was born. And this, so this was all happening sort of like we were writing this album around 2019 ish. And then 
and it was taking longer than we had hoped and mm-hmm. quarantine happened. So we were in quarantine writing all this music. And so our approach with occults was we want to make the music we've always wanted to make mm-hmm. and we're going to put it out and we don't care if anybody listens to it because as long as it's something that we're happy with. Right. Because, because we would be like, we would joke and we would say that like, you know, the last nothing still record, like I could really only listen to like half of it. So, uh, so we were like, we're only going to put out music that like we absolutely love and that we're proud of. And, 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 um, and so we did. And what we found in return was that people found it. People found it and they were listening to it. And, you know, and not just locally on a worldwide level. And Mm -hmm. so We've now been doing occults for um, going on three years now, and you know we just um, we just had a record label in Germany called Summer Darling Tapes. They licensed our first EP, Sacred Heart, and okay. put that out on cassette, and it sold out. That's awesome. Uh, and that's based in Germany, so mm-hmm. it was an EU exclusive cassette. Oh, um, and then, I and bet then that's worth got, something now. I'll have to check that out on eBay. Hell yeah. Um, and then and then um, we've got another, uh, we're writing a full-length album currently that like we weren't planning on doing, but like was sort of a similar situation with another label that, that wanted to do a vinyl release. And so it made us like reconsider what we were doing. So we like changed course and, and we were doing single-based releases. And so we were like, well, yeah, yeah, we could write an album, sure, you know. So, yeah. um, so we're in the process of finishing that up now as well. But that's amazing. Um, yeah, good. For I you think that. Man. Yeah, I think, and, and and that's the funny thing is that is that we we love it, mm-hmm. um, and it really fulfills the soul because you know you were asking me earlier about like what I bring to something creatively, and it's like yeah. a lot of times in the film world, I am being creative for other people. Mm-hmm. and you know that's self-expression they, yeah they they get all the glory you know and so <laughs> and so i and so with the cults it's very much that like we can we can create music for ourselves and if people find it they find it and if they don't they don't and it's fine you know of course i would love it if everybody found oh. it and we were the <laughs> biggest band in the world but like it just doesn't work out that way but yeah i think we've we've taken advantage of of not just thinking small, but thinking large and like thinking globally in this, you know, we sell merchandise, you know, to Australia, Germany. Um, I've, I've sold stuff up to um, other parts of Europe, Brazil. That's um, cool. and, and it's just wild, you know, of course America, but um, you know, and we just try to find new outlets for it and try to see, you know, but I think the, 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 the most difficult thing, is that now we were in the social media world, mm-hmm. whereas like we used to go and go, you know, hand out flyers at a show, mm-hmm. go to the mall and play our CD for people, and yeah. you know, they buy tickets and na 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 and and now it's like you're making content, putting it out, and then hoping the algorithm lets a hundred people see it. Yeah, oh, I, I hate social media. I mean, you know, we have to do it too, but. It's what I dread most, you know, it's. Yeah. It's oh yeah. I hate awful. it. Yeah. I, I made, I had to make, I had made some content this weekend 
and um you know really good really good stuff and i had to reach out to a couple like social media pages and throw them a couple bucks to mm-hmm. like you know these are pages with like large followings to post right, it right and we got like 15 new followers off of it you know and then i posted on my page and it gets like 60 likes or something you know it's like but it, and it's not it's nothing that we're doing it's just that the algorithm decides that sure. like if it doesn't get 20 likes in the first five minutes then people must not be interested in this and yeah. so we're not going to show it to anybody else yeah so so yeah it, it's it's a struggle and then at the same time you're watching other bands doing you know worse quality music <laughs> yes. you know who are like getting a lot more attention because they're better at social media than you are um it's, sure. it's really frustrating but I, well i was just gonna say i mean like you look at the state of of music as it is you really i mean you know we talk about doing research and it's like you can't just go to page one of google and it's the same thing with music you can't just like you know, see what's hot on Google top 100 or whatever, and find decent stuff. You have to dig deep for it. And someone like Takeshi six sixty nine or six by nine, whatever he is, he was like a social media wizard and his music was, uh, I, I couldn't stand it. I mean, it was like yeah. something they could torture you with to get secrets. And <laughs> this dude, you know, we all know he ratted and all that, but, but he blew up with horrible music and great social media skills. And that's a, a sad state that I think music is in now. I mean, is there is there anybody that's, you know, maybe the last year or two that's popped up that you're just like, man, I really love this. These guys have a big future. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what I love about what I love about our genre is that it's not mainstream, mm-hmm. but yet within the genre it might as well be mainstream you know there there are you know specifically there's a band called twin tribes that okay. are these these two mexican-american guys from south texas mm-hmm. and they are making some of the best dark wave goth music you've heard in like 40 years mm-hmm. and they're doing it all themselves they're not signed to a label you know, they self-promote and they're like, currently they just released an album about three weeks ago and they were touring down the West coast here and selling mm. out, selling out theaters and That's they've funny. got no label support behind them at all. It's all just word of mouth and like the Latin American community. And um, like those guys, those guys are really doing it big. There's another band that's fantastic called urban heat. It's also from Texas that is mixing post-punk with very sort of like i wouldn't say hip-hop but like very sort of like urban urban vibes to it that like is cool and it's fresh and you know i think our our angle of it all is that we like i said like we want to make the music that like we loved when we were a kid but we're not necessarily out to fill a quota or like make an agenda it's for us it's like making music that like when we hear it we're just like that sounds like the cure. That sounds like Depeche Mode. That sounds like the Smiths. That's and, cool. and I think that we, we figured out like our, our first EP sacred heart was like a little bit more post-punk because that was the direction we thought we wanted to go in. Mm-hmm. But then when we started noticing on social media and Spotify, that people were gravitating towards certain songs, 
we started finding our way into this more dark wave gloom gaze as we call it uh form of music yeah. where you know it's just we, we we sort of like as a cult what we do you know because emilio's married he's got two kids i'm married yeah. i work a full-time job as a film editor it's like we sort of know that's like hey we're not like we're not out there like hiding in the shadows like <laughs> drinking people's blood or anything like sure. that but what but what we can do is like we've kind of created these like uber goth characters yeah within yeah. cults that like that sing about darkness, but it's all rooted in things that are very much real, but we might over-exaggerate on sure. a few lyrical elements. Well, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, everybody has to exaggerate a little bit for it to be fun. I mean, you look at yeah. the gangster rappers out there. How many of uh, them do you think are really gangsters? <laughs> but right. I do love the occult's videos are amazing. Do you shoot those videos? Is that all you? Or I mean, I'm sure. Oh, actually, help, but actually, so uh, when Emilio was living in St. Louis, he's current. He's currently in Denver. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, when he was in St. Louis, we were working with uh, this guy uh, Juan Ibanez, JT Ibanez, uh, out of St. Louis. Okay. And so, what was great was Juan was a buddy and has his own studio and set up. And so I had, I knew that it was like, I, we can't go above and beyond because we don't have like a, a huge budget to work with. But like sure. what we can do is create content that works for what we need it to. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, one was great because we were able to do that when we, when we made um, the song hot crucible, we made this music video where we were burned alive at the stake. And this is like literally an idea that came to me as I was leaving the gym and I was listening to the <laughs> song and I was just imagining Emilio and I tied together, set <laughs> on fire. And I didn't know how I would do it, sure. I, you know, but I reached out to Juan Ibanez and he had an led uh, wall in his studio. Okay. Wow. And so I pitched this idea to him where I was like, can we, if if Emilio and I are tied together in front of this LED wall, and then we backlight it with flames, and then we front light it with, you know, flame lighting, right? Then, then I, as a film editor, I know that I could comp in real flames mm-hmm. on top of that with smoke elements and all the things, and make it look like we were really set on fire. And so that video was a lot of fun to make, and I had um, we had my cousin helped out and he um we had a bottle of uh glycerin and water for sweat and between <laughs> takes between takes he's just spraying both of us in the face with glycerin nice. so that way it looks like we're like drenched in Melting. sweat but there's, there's no actual <laughs> flames and we're just like ah <laughs> that's good stuff so hey, that was a lot of fun i want to know who killed the horse in the video patrick oh 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 in the sacred heart video yeah who was okay, responsible so for that? I did not see anything that said no animals were harmed in the making of this yes. video. Yeah, I so hope you that's, ate actually, that's actually so. I so previously before editing, I was directing music videos, and I directed a a video for this band called uh, Fire the Animal, and okay. they no longer exist anymore. But we shot this music video out in um, uh, out way out in the desert outside of Los Angeles. Angeles mm-hmm. and um, Lancaster, Lancaster, California. And while we were walking through the desert, we were there, there was like this patch of land that we were just walking across, like trying to get a shot. Right. 
and we like turned to the left and then there was just this horse just like dead that's and crazy. it was like and it's like carcass and just like completely hollowed out like i don't know like what got to it if it was like coyotes or if it was a bird but it was like literally just the it was as if the horse had just fallen over yeah. vertically <laughs> and then just like something came and just like ate out all of its insides or whatever that's crazy and so we shot footage of the horse for that video and so when I was making the Sacred Heart video, I was like, I got to go and find that footage because I knew we had a couple different shots of it. Sure. So I so I reused the same shot from uh, from that video. Okay, good. So no horses were harmed. No, that that's just called uh, in the film industry we call that a three legged dog, which is like if you're shooting something and you see a three legged dog walk by, you film it. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. You could you can always tell that footage. There's always some weirdo out there looking for a three-legged dog video. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in the desert and there's just a dead horse carcass, like you film it. Like that's right. Of course. All right. So are you guys going to be playing any shows anywhere? I mean, we you know, of, of our limited listeners, they really are all over the world. But are you guys gonna be I mean, do you play shows in LA? Do you get together much how does that work see we're hoping to uh you know like i said we got started it was very much just you know for fun Mm -hmm. but now it's grown into a much bigger thing and so like we've gotten a couple offers but they haven't been for anything that like was really substantial but i think that like because we're doing this album and that we're gonna have to probably put like a little bit of promotion behind it we're hoping to i mean i think we would love to do it there's what's great about the goth and dark wave community is that there's all these like event kind of shows around the country, like festival, you know, uh, festival type stuff. Yeah. But also like smaller scale, larger scale, um, there's goth proms that happen all around the country that, you know, so, so we're kind of hoping that, um, we can start tapping into a few of those, like once we're done with this album and we, we want to start kind of leaning in that direction, but not, not gigging, like that's like the last thing we want to do is go back to like playing, you know, three or four shows a month. You know, sure. Well, it seems like the way to make money. I mean, if you're, you know, not so good on social media, we'll say uh, in music, it seems like touring is how people make their money because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you it doesn't really matter what you do. Your song's going to be on YouTube. You know what I mean? And you can. Uh, they can run it through algorithms and stuff like that, but it's, it's always going to be out there, but the, the live show. And I think you guys, I mean, I've seen you guys, a co- uh, nothing still a couple times live. I thought you guys were great. And I think that, you know, maybe, I mean, is that something that you would welcome like touring? I think on on a certain scale. Yeah. We've talked about, I think there's, uh, there's opportunities to do stuff where like it, it's like a long weekend or something where sure. a lot of bands are doing these routes where it's like San Diego, Los Angeles, you know, the Bay area, yeah, Portland, yeah. Seattle, you know, and like that's a tour. Yeah. So it's like, I think we're more open to doing something like that instead of doing like more of like a nationwide thing. But then at the same time, like I said, it's like we sold out of, we completely sold out of a release in Germany. So yeah. if all of a sudden like a promoter from Germany calls and is like, I want you on this festival show, we're probably going to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. That's funny. I mean, we have like, you know, a couple listeners where I've had to be like, where is this place? I've never heard of it. And I'm like, how, how did you hear about <laughs> us on some 
island in the Mediterranean, but we can't get people in St. Louis to listen. Yeah, they've got cryptids on the island and they're, <laughs> they're hoping that you can help them figure it out. I'm telling you, man. So one story I wanted to get to, I was hoping Ryan would be here. I, I don't know. He said he had to dip out for a minute, but I guess we're, we'll have to do it without him, is one of the first things that uh, we did, and, and I believe we were at FYE, is go hunt down the Gibson vampire. You remember that? Yeah, I think so. So yeah, we went, uh, We, I believe it's in like Vallis Minis or Valley Mines, however you say it, but uh-huh. it's about an hour maybe south of St. Louis. And yeah, we didn't have GPS or yes. anything. We just uh, yeah, I walked. do remember this. Yeah. Yeah. So we did an episode on the Gibson Vampire. So it's kind of cool, you know, reliving those days. And we, we found the grave with the little bent over fence. And, you know, I don't think uh, there was a vampire there, but you see anything? You see anything? Might be. <laughs> yeah, I you know I completely forgot that we did that. I, I remember that now that we found that little tiny cemetery yeah. sort of like off the road. Yeah, yeah that was wild. Worried people were going to come out and shoot us because it was like kind of in people's like side yard, like a maybe a I don't know five hundred yards away from a house, and we're like watching our backs and yeah, yeah, nothing came. It's of creepy. It, but, there, you know. There's, there's places like that out, out here in California. Like if you go far enough out into the desert, like you just, I mean, there are just places where it's like, I can imagine you would bury somebody and never find them. Oh, absolutely. Ever. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, did you ever stay at the Lemp Mansion? Oh yeah. You ever have any experiences there? A hundred percent. Oh, tell us about that. <laughs> now, now we're getting to it. Rewarding the people that stuck around. Yeah, 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 and that, now we're getting into the ghost story stuff. So, yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm an avid ghost fan, um, and I think that um, uh, whenever I get into conversations with people that are very just like they don't believe in the afterlife stuff, you know, mm-hmm. I've got a few things that are in my back pocket. But like, All right. but the craziest thing that I ever experienced it happened at the Lent Mansion in St. Louis. But my cousin had gotten married, and. Uh, the reception was at the Lemp mansion mm-hmm. and that night they rented two rooms and um, the maid of honor had passed out in one of the rooms. And so it was, I specifically, it was the Charles Lemp uh, suite. And so there are two rooms or, and uh, there are two rooms in the suite, I should say. So there's like a, there's like a drawing room and then there's like the bedroom and there's a, sliding divider door between the two of them okay so uh she passed out in the bed and my cousin and i thought it would be funny to try (laughs) scaring her and so we each grabbed one side of the sliding doors and we slammed them together and it was loud it was like a gunshot went off you didn't expect it to be that loud no, but I was just, I was like two solid wood doors, right? right. Just smacked together. Okay. And it was like a gunshot went off and we're both holding the doors closed and we're giggling, we're laughing and the doors start shaking from the other side. Like they're trying to open and we're holding them as, as hard as we can. We're trying to hold these two doors together. Hmm. So, and then we, they stop and we waited a couple seconds and then we're like, all right, all right, all right. She's done. We open it back up. She hadn't moved. She was still completely passed out, sound asleep. Wow. And he and I looked at each other and we were just like, what 
the hell was that? And like to this day, I cannot explain it. Cannot explain it. But but the thing I know more than anything is that like when you when you when something happens and like it is a hundred percent real, like there's like there's to me there was like no other explanation than somebody was trying to open that door on the other side, mm-hmm. and then there was nothing there. Yeah. Like I so so yeah. I, I am a firm believer. And then the other, the other really spooky spook that gives me the heebie jeebies. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, her family is kind of highly attuned to the spirit world. Cool. And, um, and so, um, uh, our, our nephew at the time was like a year, year and a half old or whatever. And they were having like Thanksgiving and he was upstairs, um, by himself like playing with some toys or whatever and uh came downstairs in the middle of this family gathering and said mom aunt grace is upstairs she wants to speak with you okay and aunt grace had been dead for a couple years wow i think little kids can see stuff man i, I think that yeah. they can you know they haven't been beat down and told it's all in your head so I, I think, you know, kids and animals can, can see that kind of stuff, but that's, that is pretty scary, man. That, that one, it gives me the chills, even as I'm telling it to you, from, like, it's just like, from being such a <laughs> tiny kid saying it too, you uh-huh. know, you couldn't, yeah. you, you couldn't take like a one-year-old and be like, Hey, we're going to play a prank. You need to, you know yeah. what I mean? They're not going to do that. So, and then hearing it in a creepy little baby voice would be even worse. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so anything else in Limp or or anywhere else that you've had any uh, encounters? Any, any spooky? No, I've been very, I, I've been very um, not. I did have another thing. This is kind of stupid, but the <laughs> one of the first apartments that I moved into here in Los Angeles, the address was six six six, which was like part of, part of the appeal of moving there. You need and, a picture um, of that for one of your videos. I know. Uh, but um, when we moved in, the owner told us that some old woman had previously lived in the apartment and had passed. Mm-hmm. So we were just like, okay, whatever. But there were two instances. One, we were watching TV and we had um, we had these like Ouija board shot glasses, like something you would get at like Spencer's or like oh. Spirit Halloween. We had them like lined up on the um, – on the uh, – uh, we had like an Ikea shelf that the TV sat on and we were just like sitting there watching Netflix one day. And one of the shot glasses went like off of the, off of the thing and hit and smashed. Wow. Yeah. And my wife and I just jumped up like, what the hell? What was that? And I turned back and looked at her and she was like, did you see what I saw? Uh And I was like, yeah, it was like the thing went, like it didn't fall off. Right, right. Yeah, it had distance. Yeah. That's kind of scary because if it can do that, it could probably scratch you. It could probably, well, it could definitely like hide your keys and do annoying stuff. But yeah. And then the other weird thing that happened at that apartment that I that I can't explain. And this is more like it, it, it could have been it could have been just faulty shit, but like sure. it was the timing of it that was really weird was that we had um, like a hanging terrarium, like a glass terrarium thing mm. 
um, that was hanging in the living room. And my wife did something stupid. And I was like, that's it. We're done. We're breaking up. You know, we're not getting married. Nah, 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 nah. And, and like in the middle of us, like, you know, we were like play, we were play fighting with each other, but sure. we we're like yelling. And in the middle of this, the terrarium just drops and hits the floor and shatters. Damn. And we were just like, did you get out after the, that? I, I'd probably, no, the, the old woman's name was Miss Freeze. And so we were like, we're like, we're sorry, Miss Freeze. We're just joking. We're just playing around. But it was like, it was, it was weird. The timing of it was so yeah. bizarre. Well, it sounds like she doesn't like drinking and she doesn't like fighting. <laughs> so that's yeah. a good thing. You know, it could be. Well, that worse. was the other thing too, was that the Ouija glass, the one she broke was it had like a Ouija board printed on it. So oh. like, like, like you would like a flat Ouija board. It was like printed on the glass. Got so it. it was almost like she didn't like Ouija, Ouija boards, boards or something. Like, yeah, it was, it was something weird. So when you played with the Ouija board later that night, what happened? <laughs> out. Um, yeah, no, those are, those are, I think my big ones that those are like the things that I cannot explain and that, and I always go to like, that's just weird. Well, it happens. Uh, so I have an email out to uh, Jim Cornette. Pretty sure he's not going to email me back. Would you be wait, Jim Cornette, the wrestling the manager? Jim Cornette. Yes. <laughs> I want to do an episode on the dark side of the ring. Would you want to come back and do an episode? On oh, that? I might just, just to come back and listen. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, you obviously you've seen it. Right? I've seen dark side of the ring. Yeah, yeah. 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 They're pretty wild, man. Um, yeah. Have you seen the iron claw? No, but I saw it was suggested for me. So I'm going to yeah, watch it in the next couple of days here. Heart wrenching. But man, like uh, Bruiser Brody, he used to yeah. fight at wrestling at the chase. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's almost before my time. So it's probably a little bit before your time, but uh, yeah, like Harley race and Bruiser Brody and guys like that, they used to all wrestle in St. Louis and yeah, I don't know, some weird stuff uh, went on with, uh, I mean, it's almost like everybody is fucked up, right? Every ex wrestler. <laughs> yeah yeah oh definitely i mean uh one of our uh clients uh randy orton is his brother-in-law so mm -hmm. he's come in and uh hung out with the group and stuff like that he seems to be a pretty nice guy but i don't know man it seems like a curse but uh you uh want to tell us the story about going through your dad's old photos and what you found let me give you a hint if it'll show up on camera Oh, can you see it? <laughs> oh, Ric Flair. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think I think I know the story you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were um, wasn't my dad. It was um, um, in Nothing Still, our guitarist. Oh, okay. uh, Anthony. His dad used to play a lot of shows, and um, uh, down in sort of like Southern Missouri area or whatever. And they used to they used to have shows. And they would just like put up like a flatbed trailer, like set up their instruments and just play. And like people would just show up and come out and drink or whatever. And so he was like showing us photos and I'm flipping through the photos and there's this guy with like long, stark white hair. And just as a joke, I'm like, I'm like, oh, Rod, you didn't tell me Ric Flair was at your shows. And he goes, oh, yeah, he used to come out. And I turn to the next photo and sure as shit, it's Ric Flair. That's crazy. <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, yeah. Where can people, uh, first of all, 
run through some movies that you want people to take a look at and tell us oh, where, yeah. where they can find them. Yeah, definitely. A lot, a lot of the stuff I worked on their independent features. Um, so they are available through uh, Amazon prime or Apple movies from, you know, video on demand services. Um, scare me. The, the three that I would definitely check out. If you have a shutter subscription, I would check out scare me who invited them and blood relatives, which is a fun, I didn't talk about that earlier, but it's a fun horror comedy about uh, a vampire father and daughter on a road trip together. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of fun to work on. Um, and then uh, Clara's ghost is another one. Um, I'm pretty sure you can watch that on Amazon prime. Uh, it stars the entire Elliot family, Chris Elliott, uh, Abby Elliott, who was just nominated for a golden globe. And it was directed by my good friend, Bridie Elliott. And, um, and then um, I've got, uh, you know, I said like Netflix, there's a show called bonding that I worked on, which is easily accessible. You can watch that anytime. Uh, and then uh, I've got uh, Shelby Oaks directed by Chris Stuckman, hopefully coming out this year. And um, yeah, just trying to survive out here. I hear you. Uh, where do you want them to go to buy occult merchandise? Oh yeah. Go to, go to occultsofficial.com, which will send you directly to our Bandcamp page. And you can buy, uh, you know, we got CDs, cassettes, uh, digital uh, files uh, for, you know, if you want, want your music digital. And then also you can order t-shirts, hats, all kinds of stuff. We got a ton of merchandise. And uh, yeah, you just go to bandcamp.com and search for occults. All right. That sounds great. I really appreciate your time, Ryan. Do you have any uh, follow-up questions you want to ask? No, no, I apologize for bailing on the last quarter of that. We had, uh, well, you know, I have a very young daughter. There was a bathroom-related emergency. <laughs> oh, no. Don't want to talk about it, but <laughs> it was really awesome talking to you about movies. And it's funny that I use Chris Stuckman as an example of a new director and you happen to direct I love, <laughs> I love that. That's, that's kismet. Like, yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Keep an eye out for that movie. It's going to be It's going to be really good. Okay, we like to wrap up our shows with a quote. So you want to tell us your favorite quote from Ghostbusters? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I've got a few. All I've right. got a few. Um, uh, uh, I Well, for, for the Cryptid podcast, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. <laughs> good. That's good. That is good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I guess that about wraps it up. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we had a lot of fun and I appreciate the over two hours you gave us. Time's one of the best gifts you can give anyone. So we, we really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Be sure to check out all of Patrick's stuff. Uh, all the links will be in the show notes and please like subscribe and share. It really helps us out. The socials will all be in the notes. Let us know what you think at crypticpodcast at gmail.com and you can find all of our slick designs at crypticpodcaststore.com. If you want to do a one-time donation, we would really appreciate that. It'll help keep the uh, servers on and the mics hot. You can do that at buymeacoffee.com forward slash crypticpi. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. The band is a cult and this track is Crystal Coffins. We're just going to let this play out. Thank you.
sweetest bread. It's a sage and sage.